a Podcast One production. Artificial intelligence, it's going out into our workplaces, it's improving our lives, it's making things easier. Things like Alexa can order food for us, we can even go and ask for a haircut to be booked. It is making our professional lives easier. At the same time, it's making hackers' lives easier. And all these systems that are getting out there and basically creating new vectors for us as hackers to attack you and your network. And the even scarier thing is all these systems are self-improving. The artificial intelligence means it improves itself. And by improving itself, it means we no longer understand how it does what it does. And when we don't know that, it makes us easier or more vulnerable to attack from a cybersecurity world. That's why we've got Carsten Rudolph, the Associate Professor of Cybersecurity from Monash University, to help us talk through artificial intelligence, what's exciting for him, what's concerning for him, and how it's going to impact society and cybersecurity and our jobs from day to day. Carsten, you're the Director of the Oceana Cybersecurity Centre. Can you explain to us a little bit what OCSC does? Yeah, the Oceana Cybersecurity Centre is a collaboration of eight universities in Victoria. And the main idea was really to get uh, cybersecurity researchers to talk to each other, to run projects together. Because looking at at the different people doing research in that space, we found it's quite complementary, but it's a lot of like smaller teams. So nobody can actually cover a very wide range of topics, but together we we probably can. And therefore we we thought that's a good idea. And is there, is there a reason why you deemed it necessary or is there a specific remit or research field that you're looking into improving or understanding more? Monash does a lot of research on, on very technical computer science things like uh, hardcore cryptography, uh, post-quantum cryptography, doing computation on encrypted data. But if you want to have impact, you need to connect it to other things. You actually need to apply it and connecting people is really core to, to have impact at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners, can you touch on what cryptography actually is? Well, cryptography is kind of one of the of the basis of our security in the in the internet, right? Like every time you see this this lock on the on the browser, it means your your traffic is encrypted. That means there's some keys that encrypt data, so they scramble the data so that somebody looking at it cannot read it anymore or change it. Uh, just the the server on the other side you talk to can, and there's different types of encryption. So but it's, it's kind of without that security would be super difficult on the internet. So we've seen over the last sort of uh, six to twelve months some rumors that uh, some computers have reached quantum supremacy, and we've also heard a lot of information about artificial intelligence. How much of a threat is that to current cryptography? Well, at the moment, to current cryptography, it's not a threat yet. So uh, cryptography is really based on kind of some some hard mathematical problems, which means that if somebody would be able to solve these problems, they could also break uh, some of the cryptography that we use at the moment. And some of these problems uh, with a quantum computer, you can, like uh, factorization of big numbers, which show that getting these prime factors, which some people from school might remember what that was. And and that's actually a hard problem to do, but with a quantum computer, it's not that hard. So these kind of things would be broken. So people look at the transition to, to newer versions of these algorithms that would still work, and we can do that, I guess. So for our listeners, tell us a little bit what 
uh, quantum supremacy is. I believe it's like when we, when a traditional computer would take a thousand years to solve a problem, a quantum computer can solve it in under a minute. Is, is that roughly right? Yeah, it's more like uh, some of the problems with normal computers we actually cannot solve in any, in any reasonable time. And quantum supremacy really means that a quantum computer is more powerful than a normal computer is. And that would be in a way that actually problems that we cannot solve at the moment would be possible. It's super fascinating. I think Microsoft have even got teams of engineers that are literally building up these new code bases to use quantum computing. They've got their own, they realize they're going to have to completely change the standard computing model and work on things. But I'll get back on track. In the center, can you describe a couple of the innovations in cybersecurity technology that have impressed you and are cool, quote unquote, over the last few years and what that, some of those might be? By the way, the center's some innovations happening, which is uh, probably more smaller transfer of research into, into practical applications. And, and one is, for example, to, to have an efficient way to use what is called searchable encryption. And the idea is you put a database uh, somewhere on a computer or on a server, and it might be on the cloud. And now if somebody gets access to that server, they directly can copy the complete data. Right? And that is the big breaches that we read about. And the idea of searchable encryption is that everything that you store is encrypted all the time. And you actually search over the encrypted data and you only decrypt the results that you can get back. So as long as the attacker or the hacker wouldn't get that keys, there's no way the whole database could be stolen. So we have a prototypes for that kind of uh, technology from some projects that were collaborations of uh, universities like Monash, IMIT, Melbourne University, and Beacon and Swinburne. And that's quite uh, quite interesting because it would really solve quite a few of the problems and reduce risks of, uh, of the damage of the attack, actually. So let's talk about something really interesting. So I'm going to put my black hat on now and talk about how potentially I might use AI to make my attacks more efficient, of course, now only legally. Let's say 10 years ago, it took me a week to break into one organization on a vulnerability that I'd found. I can now use machine learning and AI, like a, a, a tool like IBM Watson, for example, to go out and search the complete vulnerabilities database, go and scan 50,000 IP addresses, come back with a concordated list of the vulnerabilities that I'm after, get into those systems, get into those email systems, and then before maybe one system, I'd be looking for emails between senior staff and maybe an account person approving invoices is the goldmine for us hackers. I can then go and get that system to identify that data, give me a list of the people that are talking about invoicing, the people that are talking about accounting, and then use the same system to target those people over weeks and months, learn their lingo, learn the way they talk, learn their communication behaviors, and then hit that organization so hard that it even thwarts some of the new techniques that they put in place to stop invoice fraud. For example, ring the person back. Now using artificial intelligence and an adversarial network, we can upload maybe three or four minutes of someone's voice. I can send an email to the accounts person and say, hey, transfer $100,000 to this account. I'm going to give you a phone call in two minutes just to verify this is true. I jump on an app on my phone. It translates my voice into the voice of the CEO and I ask them to communicate that order. She's had a two-factor authentication, bang out the money goes. That's a great example of how hackers are using these tools to manipulate people, manipulate networks, and, and get more success, essentially. How would we use this technology to detect those types of attacks and 
and protect our networks rather than just using it as a tool for me to get into more networks? Yeah, that's actually difficult with the systems that we have in place at the moment and with the, with the technology to, to create fake voice uh, and, and probably also fake video pretty soon, uh, advancing a lot. So trying to detect that is probably super difficult. So I, I would probably step back a little bit and look at our systems and, and ask the question why we have systems in place that have that kind of vulnerabilities in the first place. So the question is, people talk about uh, this asymmetry in that game where uh, the attacker has all the advantages because you can, you just need to find one weakness and you can get in. You just need to find one vulnerability. You need to find one person that falls for your scam that doesn't detect that there's something wrong with what, what's happening at the moment and just following your, your advice. And I, I guess you can, you can find that in any any profession, in any space, you can find ways to talk people into behaving the way you want them to behave. Um, and then use weaknesses in the system. So that's an asymmetry. But if you look at it, again, with my research head on from the game theory side, the strongest advantage in a game you can have is if you're the person dictating the rules of the game, right? So by putting systems in place, I'm in the position to dictate the rules of the game. So I'm pretty much wondering why we don't really uh, use that that position to dictate the rules of the game in a way that we put secure systems in place. And then we have lots of vulnerabilities there, and then we try to educate people to deal with them. And this is a pretty much impossible task. So a great example would be why in the world are we still using email to communicate secure data? Why are we using, for example, a system that you're developing right now, a searchable encryption database that allows us to transmit secure data and only use those systems once they've been verified on both ends to, for example, execute a, an accounting-related... Yeah, one example is, uh, I don't know if you've seen yesterday the news that a big pile of uh, basically number plate recognition data from the UK was sitting openly on the internet. And so everybody could see in that region who was driving from where to where over quite a, some time. So why would you store that kind of data mm. unencrypted in some server who's somewhere sitting on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. If you need to store this data, for example, and a great example of this is, say, the current government COVID Safe app, they're still using traditional databases. How could AI be used or some of the solutions that you're working at the OCSC be used to help the government store this data more securely? Well, in that case... Some of our um, researchers have worked on an alternative way to do that contact tracing without having that data in the first place. So you don't actually store that data in a database. So you can use cryptography in a way that, that you identify people while preserving their privacy. That uh, sounds like a weird contradiction, but there's fancy things called zero-knowledge proofs where you can prove that something is true without actually giving any information about that. And using that kind of technology, you could build these systems without producing data, probably still a little data that you need, which would basically be some random numbers. But if somebody would steal those, there would be no problem. So how far away are we from seeing those kind of technologies in the field? Um, well, some of these are still quite inefficient, but some are really getting very practical. So I think 
we're not very far from from actually using that. And there are technologies, for example, in the blockchain world where privacy of a blockchain transaction is protected by some very fancy advanced cryptography. Excellent. All right. So with your experience in cybersecurity issues, what's the most interesting area and why for yourself? Well, at the moment, um, I think uh, a super interesting area is to look at the, from the research side, to look at the um, connection between human behavior and cybersecurity. And we have started uh, quite a research program around that. I mean, my, my favorite example really about that is we, we teach people that they're not supposed to click on links and emails, right? Yeah. And I can't even count the emails I'm, I receive that I'm supposed to click on links. So we, we give out that totally contradicting message to people. So how do we expect people to really understand how they're supposed to behave? And, and in that, that space, I think we need to really understand how the perception of technology is and, and how we can build the systems in the way that people actually have a chance to perceive it in the right way. So really leveraging AI to help user behavior analytics and how users are trained and how they use the systems. Well, it's not necessarily AI. It can be partly AI, but sometimes it's very simple things, such as, well, why do we have uh, email clients that can, by clicking on a link, attack our system? So I have problems explaining this to people, really. Well, even now there's some there's some malicious code getting around that actually executes code out of the preview window, so we don't even need to click on the link. Simply previewing the email is enough to uh, run some scripts on the back end. So very often people just just give up on uh, on trying to do the right thing because they they learn about well there's attacks that don't even require to click on anything. Right? Yeah, like there's a current weakness in the iOS mail app which comes with iPhones. I guess it's probably fixed by now, but that didn't even require you to to actually open that email. Well, the same with drive-by scripting. So, for example, if you visit a malicious website or you get redirected to a malicious website, that'll now allow you to just run scripts on your computer. There's not a great deal you can do about that apart from update and patch. But where does this all end? So, obviously, AI and people like you working in the research field trying to do things for good, people trying to use it for bad machine learning... Is there ever going to be a point you believe where the good guys win or the bad guys win, or is it just an evolution of war as it always has been? Well, there will probably not be any end to that because we look. We want to put new systems in place, right? We all want to benefit from all this fancy stuff um, because it it makes life much easier in some some areas, like having this interview over over video conferencing and actually seeing you on the screen, talking to you, that's really nice to have. But on the other hand, I've installed some some desktop app of coming from Zoom on my computer, which is probably not the highest quality type of software if you look into it. It's using some, some kind of outdated libraries here and there, but I still want to use it. So as long as we don't really focus on the quality of our systems and our software, this will be an ongoing game, I guess. And obviously that's something that can be helped with machine learning. So if you've got an AI buddy helping you create code which is secure to the core or create systems that have secure rules or even looking at a system at a whole, it's really hard for a human to perceive a system in its entirety. But machine learning and artificial mm. intelligence are very good at doing that. And, and flip that, it's also very good for identifying lots of flaws. You, you touched on IoT devices and Zoom. Again, it's very easy for me to 
set up current technology today and make it a very powerful attacking tool to go and find all the IoT devices that have a default username and password. And that goes back to user behavior. You know, why aren't people changing these things? And it might be, like you said, they just give up. So hopefully artificial intelligence can help be our buddy to make sure that we get all those things right. It even possibly in the future becomes packaged with every piece of technology we have, interviews us on how we want to use it, and then configures it in such a way that it becomes secure. Yeah, but a bit, a bit of this is, I guess, also education, because if you if you look at the advertisements, there's ads out there for heating for your home or climate uh, control, air conditioning for your home, which basically says, well, if you can connect to it from remote, you can always control what's happening in your home via your mobile phone, or probably a hacker can as well. So this is not part of the story. So everybody, I think, needs to be educated to understand that it's as soon as I connect something in my home to the internet, it's potentially accessible to somebody playing with it or hacking into it or misusing it. So in this field, what scares you the most about this technology? And then flip that, what excites you the most? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, scaring, I think my my biggest problem with that is that we are really fast in bringing new technology in place. And because companies want to make profit with that technology, what scares me is that they cut corners. And that's happening all the time. I mean, if you look at the Boeing 737 MAX issue, it's not a cybersecurity issue. Nobody has hacked that plane. But still, it was cutting corners on on quality of software and quality of redundancy of sensors, etc. And we even let these companies certify their systems themselves. And this is not even looking at any malicious behaviors, right? And if I put this kind of systems, if I have this kind of systems in a highly regulated area like airplanes, I don't want to look at our energy networks and, and medical systems. The health system is a really terrible space in terms of cybersecurity, I guess. And that is what, what scares me. So we touched on you know, the fear side of it and then the amazing sort of evolutionary way that AI is helping us develop products and, and the way it actually works. Now, what's your biggest fear? So we have people like Elon Musk getting out there saying, um, you know, AI is one of his biggest concerns and robots will take over the world and we should stop this now. We have other people doing TED Talks saying, no, no, uh, AI will always be a helper to humanity and other people that everything in between. Is there any fear for you there? Is there any kind of concern that these things will develop and start, uh, you know, for example, we've already had artificial intelligence create an AI child, for example, and they, there are artificial intelligence out there that can self-replicate. Are there concerns out there for you? Well, I think but currently we're still in the situation that we always can switch off any AI that we use. I think my biggest concern is that we put too much trust into AI. So we build systems like, uh, take the RoboDebt example in Australia, where which didn't work very well. So we, we put systems in place and we trust that because it was an AI, it will take the right decisions and we don't actually question it. And people talk about, let's say, using AI to have interpretations of our laws and replace um, law proceedings by automated AI. That puts, I think, too much trust into how all these uh, AI systems work. So let's bring this back for, into my world with cybersecurity. One of my biggest fears is 
you know, we have um, systems that do code analysis and pattern analysis on large networks for our clients. And there's a certain amount of that data that we just don't understand. It might be legitimate network traffic going through two programs, but it would be fairly easy, I would imagine. And let's take Zeus as an example. It was code that was written a long time ago, and it's propagated so completely around the world that millions of devices are infected. How scary would it be if you used AI to basically get a hold of every device on the planet and then take control of those devices? I mean, you can take an AI program, for example, in antivirus-type solution, and then you can teach your artificial intelligence to subvert that, find out what the thresholds are, find out what the detection limits are, and then go and propagate it all around the world. And is that something that, that concerns you or, or there's, there's solutions around that? Well, it, it kind of comes back to the, to the question of how, how secure the devices are that we put in place. I guess with current devices, these kind of scenarios are possible and, and adding virus protection... Well, in many cases, it has also increased the attack surface by adding new vulnerabilities and additional problems. So it probably doesn't save you from that. Like there um, are amazing things right now that we just don't know why it happened. For example, you know, the huge stock market crash that was because of trading bots. So we do know what happened there. But Or, or huge changes in cryptocurrency prices due to artificial trading and intelligence. There's a lot of control that are given to these systems or everything that we have control over and the writer of these systems or the creator of these systems can execute the same control, I imagine we're going to see some kind of big AI attack that's going to change the world, maybe similar on a scale to where we've seen COVID change the world, some kind of large-scale AI attack that crushes our markets or takes over our finance systems. Is, is that a real concern with our current systems? Uh, some hospitals have, for example, experienced that uh, through ransomware attacks that they probably need to do something about server security and about the way they are protected. The problem with uh, with that is that there's so many different sectors that that is probably not enough to just have uh, cyber security specialists. And if you look at, at the education side, we do educate cyber security specialists on lots of different levels. We have some who work on more the practical side, we have others that Universities like Monash, who more probably more on the computer science side of the of the game, but then we have nurses working with uh, um, health technology and doctors and and people in lots of different areas who probably have no clue about cyber security issues, but they work with devices that are highly vulnerable and that probably control your life because you, they control a drip with your medicine or stuff like that. Yeah, the pacemakers, the drips, everything seems to be internet connected. And a lot of these technologies are, are really old. Some of the ones we've done testing on are still running Windows XP or, or even DOS-based systems. Yeah, and you can't update them. Mm. And there's a good reason for that because they have medical certification. And if you update the operating system, they might change behavior. And that's another problem. So we would need to recertify them and that's super expensive. So we don't. You'll stick to Windows XP or we some real super old real-time Windows or not. So if you're walking around with a pacemaker that's internet connected, or you're in a hospital with life-saving technology, and a lot of these devices are connected to the internet now, you're personally invested in making sure this technology works well. And that's everyone from the lawmakers of the country, right down to your mums and dads. Why hasn't this been a focus? And I understand that we're talking that it costs a lot of money to certify these devices, but surely when you start talking about an attacker potentially controlling every pacemaker in the country 
hitting a button, get everyone getting a big kick in their heart and all these people dropping dead, that's serious enough to cause some change. Yeah, it's probably a matter of regulation. The, the privacy part is all driven by laws and regulations. And on the, on the other side, probably not a lot has happened yet. And then very often things have to happen first, but we know about that. So we could change it now, but you go to a hospital and you see, my favorite second example is, you see these, uh, these drips controlling medicine and there's one Windows machine actually sitting in a patient's room controlling the drips for like two, three different rooms. So how secure is that? Mm. So it's uh, probably not a, not a really good idea to build things that way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frightening. Knowing you know, how easy it is to break into systems in my day-to-day role and you know, we are paid by hospitals to penetrate into their environments and unfortunately they're, they're probably one of the worst, uh, well, sorry, easiest networks to breach into at the moment, particularly in the Australian environment. I'm not sure about overseas. It's uh, quite frightening that you know, people that we love are being looked after by these systems and we are essentially at the will of a hacker that can just write a few lines of code, maybe use some of these machine learning techniques to identify these devices, use AI to get it out there and disseminate it in the world and then attack these systems. But, I mean, like you said, it, it might need it to happen to actually show the world we need to do something about that, which is a pretty horrific model for change. Enough people die, we do something about it. That doesn't seem like a good way to, to run the world. Well, that seems to be one that, that happens in, in many different areas. Mm, yeah, absolutely. The other scary thing is maybe we can touch on this really quickly as well is once we develop these systems that augment their own capability, that augment their own processes and thereby make things more efficient, how much of a concern is it that we then know, we don't understand how these systems operate? So even today, like I couldn't really tell you exactly the technology that's allowing us or the video codecs that are allowing us to communicate right now and compress my voice over the internet and so you can hear it and I can hear it in near real time. How much would AI then further complicate things to a point where we don't even understand how the world works and then if something goes wrong, we wouldn't be able to fix it? And, and that's probably even a bit worse because um, even if you don't understand the way these video codecs work at the moment and that, it's still a program that you could debug. So you could go through it and understand how it works and that. Um, if you have like a, a machine learning type of system, maybe one that, that has continuously learns new things, uh, you can't really debug it in the, in the classical way. And then if somebody tried to embed malicious behaviors or backdoors that uh, with some trigger change the behavior, it would be super difficult to find out. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think. And it kind of, I mean, if we allow these systems to completely control everything and then there was some kind of failure, like you said, we really would be taken back in the dark ages. Like, forget understanding how to dig into the ground and mine some ore and melt it down and make metal. We're talking about a complete collapse of society and structure if we don't create rules and, and things to allow this to work properly in our favor. Yeah, and it's also, it, we really put a lot of trust into this and there can be financial uh, motivations for companies to to build in backdoors or, or biases into uh, AI systems. I mean, we've already, we've already seen that with... Uh, Juniper's hack, they had uh, some data on one of their main chips that was there from like 1996 to 2000 undetected, which was a backdoor for the Chinese government, I believe, into any Juniper system for some time before it was detected. Even worse, I would imagine, with AI-based systems. My takeaway from this is humans are kind of bad and uh, we need a much better <laughs> version of us to create these new technologies. And we also need to understand better what, 
what can happen with these technologies. And we, um, our research is trying a lot of things. So we we also try how to how to improve resilience of AI systems against people trying to integrate backdoors, which basically means training the system to react on some particular input by changing its behavior, um, which is actually super easy to do if you if you have access to the to the training data. So we've got an AI helper that's helping us, and then we've got an AI monitor to make sure that that AI is not being sort of modified in any way to do anything malicious. Probably. <laughs> if you're a parent listening or you're, you're someone studying at the moment, what would you be studying to future-proof your roles? Like There are a lot of roles, as you said, they're going to fall by the wayside. What's something that you see over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years that it's going to be super critical and needed? I think there's uh, there are quite a few things. Definitely, all the data science is pretty much hyped. So many many people go into studying data science, AI, and all that. Uh, this definitely will be needed. But I would recommend to pair with some other area, either some some application domain like like health or energy or maybe even psychology, because I think this is where things will get really interesting in the future is the connection between all these systems and all these different other areas and, and also humans. And we need people on these intersections because it's not enough just to understand the technology. You need to understand what it actually means in the different contexts. And we don't have enough people uh, understanding both sides. So from a skills point of view, and the market demand that we're going to see, is Monash University providing this content and, and guiding students to this new world of cybersecurity, accountability, availability, uh, AI? How are the universities preparing the students for the future? Well, it's, a, it's probably an ongoing process and will, will stay an ongoing process. So the content in that, that area is kind of continuously revised and, and updated. Uh, we bring in new uh, New units for for new upcoming areas all the time. We do have uh, double degrees between AI, data science, cybersecurity, IT, and basically all other faculties at, at Monash. So, if you wanted to study, let's say, data science or cybersecurity or IT with a cybersecurity focus, you can, in addition, study basically any any other discipline for example, law, to, to be that expert who really understands the technology, but also the law side, or health, medicine, even pharmacy, to understand how AI can be used to, to explore different new medicines and, and pharmacy. So all these intersections, I think we are there with double degrees, but I think we are in the process to, of developing this uh, integration between the different topics more. If you're interested in learning about AI, head over to Monash University. They've got lots of courses, as Carson was mentioning, that's going to uh, future-proof yourself in your business and uh, in your future studies. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Carson. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Super interesting chat. And I think it's a topic I probably could talk for quite a while. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunately, we've got to give the studio back at some point. But One of the things I'm really proud of is we've actually created a team of people during this pandemic that are here to help Australian businesses, that are here to help people through this pandemic. So if you're worried about your staff working from home, if you're concerned that your security is wide open, get onto our website, ctrlgroup.io, or give us a call on 1300 28 75 28. And honestly, we've got a team of really great people that are here to help you 
and get through this thing and make sure your business is still here in the years to come. Cyberhack is presented by me, Bastian Treptel. It's produced by Matt Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin, with audio production thanks to Darcy Thompson. See you next time. Hacking is real. People and organisations are being taken down every day. If you'd like some professional advice and assistance, go online to ctrlgroup.com.au and we'll help you.